In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, the Apostle Paul said, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Welcome to today's Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. This week, Senior Pastor Perry Duggar will explore how God used suffering in Paul's life and learn how he does in ours as well. The series is called Sufficiency in Christ. Today's message is titled, Suffering. Are you standing on a rock in your life? Are you slipping? Today we continue our survey. We'll be concluding next week of 2 Corinthians, Sufficiency in Christ. Today's message is entitled, Suffering. So that's one you were eager to get here for, was <laughs> The theme that I've chosen out of chapter 12, we'll be dealing with a little bit of chapter 11, but also primarily chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, is part of verse 10, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And again, that's a, a passage we're all very familiar with. You know, I think if we're honest, many of us wonder, if God loves us and he truly is all-powerful, then why do we have to endure disappointment, heartache, pain, and suffering? Any of you wonder that? And we question when something befalls our lives, illness or some other form of tragedy, misfortune. We have a tendency to question whether God is punishing us for something. Either something we've done or something we failed to do. Anybody ever been susceptible to slip into that? Now, there was certainly no one, any of us here, and probably no one I know of historically, ever served God with greater effort or more sacrifice than Paul. Yet, Paul encountered many problems and endured many trials. Today's passage is the middle of chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians through the middle of chapter 12. I won't read all of that. But let me just summarize. Paul is continuing to defend his authority to as apostle over this Corinthian church. The apostles represented God. So they, they had some, they guided, they led, they were an official who was over the church, essentially. And so Paul is continuing to defend himself and his position against criticisms and false accusations. That runs throughout this letter. But it's interesting to see the humanity of Paul, isn't it? You know, let me give you a, a warning or, or maybe a little bit of clarity. When we read the New Testament, how much of it is inspired? How much of it is human? I didn't hear as much enthusiasm on that one. All of it. So the personality of Paul shows through. So it doesn't mean that everything 
he said as a human was something for us to copy necessarily. It was just showing you who he is honestly. And so I see some defensiveness in this letter, don't you? And, and even some, some reluctance, some discomfort. He, he's reluctant to defend himself. He's, he's kind of torn. He, he knows it's important that they respect him and follow his leadership. And yet he's almost embarrassed because it's distasteful for him to defend himself. Do you see that happening? God shows us the personalities as well as in the inspiration, but it isn't that everything that every New Testament letter shows us is something to be copied. Sometimes it's something to be avoided. But Paul, he could have argued his accomplishments. I mean, he encountered Jesus personally on the road to Damascus, and Jesus called him into his service as, a, um, as an apostle, as a church planter. Paul planted at least 20 churches, and then those churches planted other churches. So he was responsible for many more than um, 20. He wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament. If you think Hebrews was written by him, then he wrote 14 And so he, instead of presenting all of his accomplishments, instead, he presents his suffering, the suffering that he endured serving Jesus as his qualification to lead. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us just a list of his suffering. Turn there, if you have this Bible that's available here, we begin on page 935. And I'm beginning at verse 23 of chapter 11. Are they, and he's speaking of the false teachers there at Corinth, are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I've served him far more. I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And I faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches, in particular this church in Corinth that he's writing the letter to, who's being led away from truth into sin by false teaching. Now, how many of us would compare our suffering with Paul's? And yet, how many have been used to the extent Paul has? It doesn't line up with our American way of thinking, does it? 
you see, with all of Paul's accomplishments for God, planting churches, writing scripture, I mean, certainly he pleased God with his life, right? And we have this naive, really wrong way of thinking that if we please God, he pleases us in every way. And yet Paul suffered greatly, painfully, and not rarely. Perhaps the deepest pain Paul suffered. He, didn't, he doesn't talk much about the, the beatings and all in, in other places. But it appears the deepest pain he suffered as we study this book, but even other places, was being rejected by people he loved. Paul was rejected by these Corinthians. He evangelized them. He took them the gospel. He cared for them. He ministered them. He taught them. He nurtured them in their faith. And they've turned their backs on him. You ever been hurt that way? Somebody you, you might have brought into the world. Someone you've nurtured, you've loved, you've cared for, you've ministered to. Sometimes it's our families, isn't it? Someone you've, you've birthed, you've changed diapers, you've let them throw up on you. You've, and then they turn. I don't know, is there anything more painful? I don't think there is. I don't think there is. And Paul was like a father to these people, and yet they rejected him. Some of you are suffering this right now. You have some in your family who have turned away from you. Could be moral issues. Unfortunately, nowadays, it's some of these political issues. You support a different party. You believe differently about vaccines or viruses. And yet, some of you are headed into the holiday season, and you're not looking forward because either everyone won't be there, or if they're there, it won't be pleasant. Anybody there? Well, that's suffering. That's suffering if we're standing on God's place. You see what I'm saying? Now, there's a difference in saying, I'm for this party, I'm for that party. I'm for the vaccine, I'm not for the... Oh, no, where's God in this? We stand at God's place. But that still doesn't mean you won't be rejected. So let's explore this subject of suffering to discover whether there is purpose in our pain. First, suffering doesn't deny faith. Now, the Greeks, they had lots of gods. Y'all know that, right? And so the Greeks thought that people who represented the gods would, would experience these mystical, metaphysical visions. So Paul relates the most amazing of his visions as well. He's kind of saying, they claim this, but I can tell you this. There are at least six different visions in, that are recorded in Acts that Paul experienced. So we begin in chapter 12. This boasting will do no good, but I must go on. You see how he's, he's kind of torn, isn't he? He feels like he needs to argue to, to bring these people back around. And yet he's thinking, is it going to do any good? And why am I doing this? And he's sort of, he's reluctant. He's, he's almost embarrassed. 
But he goes on, he says, I will reluctantly tell about the visions and revelations from the Lord. Paul didn't want to talk about it because he knew that that stuff doesn't really benefit the church. I know in some churches, it, it, people love to talk about these visions and, and all, but it's usually not helpful. And sometimes it can become an issue of pride. And we'll see in Paul that it had that potential. But visions like that, they can't be proven as from God. They, they can't be repeated. They won't be repeated. And yet, yet still he's persisting. Verse two, I was caught up in the third heaven. That's the highest heaven. It was the heaven, it's the heaven where God dwells. 14 years ago, it was probably AD, between AD 41 and 43, depending on when 2 Corinthians was written. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. So he, don't, he doesn't really know whether he was, what he, what he experienced was in his physical body or was it just a, a, a mental, spiritual experience. He doesn't know. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body, but I do know that I was caught up to paradise. And caught up is a reference to the Spirit of God taking over and, and transporting you somewhere. And paradise is just another parallel word for the highest heaven. And I heard things so astonishing that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. So if you notice, Paul described this experience, but he doesn't tell you anything about it. He doesn't try to give a description of what he saw. He gives you no information about what he heard, except that there aren't words to express it, and I'm not supposed to express it anyway. I mean, there are things that are secrets of God's that we'll never know and we have no way to express. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says some, some secret things belong only to God. But Paul had these wonderful supernatural experiences with the Lord and, and many of you have, but, but they don't do a lot of good for others, do they? It's something he did in you, for you, but it doesn't really give you a lot of influence to make somebody else follow it. And so Paul's feeling that frustration. So Paul had these wonderful experiences, but, but he also suffered greatly. Disappointment, pain, suffering do not deny or refute our faith. In fact, persevering through pain with Christ's help actually proves the reality of our faith. Now, I know this. Some people believe and teach that Christians don't suffer unless there is unconfessed sin or a lack of faith. Anybody ever heard that? It's not true, and it's not biblical. 
Now, I didn't say that God doesn't sometimes discipline us for sin. He does. Hebrews 12 clearly says that. But hear me on this. All suffering is not from sin. Because you know what? Sometime in our lives, every one of us suffer. And if we believe something like that, then we find ourselves in shame and guilt and feeling abandoned by God. It is not true. Bad things happen to people in this world. We live in a fallen world that's been corrupted by sin. And God allows us to suffer for his purpose and for what it does in our lives. Are you right now enduring pain? Do you know that your ability to endure proves your faith? Do you know that? Suffering displays my spiritual condition. I think trouble is probably the truest test of a person's spiritual character and maturity. Verse 5. That experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. See how conflicted he is. You ever been like that? Well, I'm going to tell you. No, I'm not going to tell you. Well, maybe I will tell you. You ever been conflicted? I think Paul's conflicted. Does that sound unspiritual? I will boast only about my weaknesses, his personal characteristics. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth. He did have the vision, but I won't do it. Because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they see in my life or hear in my message. See, in other words, he's saying, I've had these, these wonderful experiences, but don't be envious of me and don't value me because of something God did in my life supernaturally. Look at me by what you see in my life. Because of those experiences, what, it, what is the effect of God's work in my life? See the difference? Even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God, he didn't want people to view him as special because of what God had done for him. Well, that's very did, it, different, isn't it? We think somebody that's had these wonderful visions, they, they're ahead of us. They're way, a, no, no, no. What, what Paul's saying is, no, examine me by my ministry, my service, by the result of God's work in my life. Not the fact that God did this. Because listen, if you're born again today, God has done the greatest, most wondrous, most supernatural thing possible in your life to give you new life. A vision is not greater than that. It's less than that. Because you've received the Spirit of God and you've been regenerated and made new. And then he says, so to keep me from being proud, becoming proud of this special treatment, 
I was given a thorn. Scallops is the Greek word. And, and more literally, it should be a stake. We think of a little thorn, you know, like on a rose bush that cuts us a little bit. No, no. This is like a big stake that people would be impaled upon or tortured with. So this is a, a very huge, painful thing. A thorn in my flesh. A messenger, that's a agalos, which is translated angel or messenger from Satan. And, that, and Satan in Greek is satanus, which can be translated accuser or devil or obviously Satan. To torment me and keep me from becoming proud. What is the thorn in the flesh? Some of you probably know. You think you know, don't you? Well, there's a lot of debate about it. Many commentators assume it was a physical ailment. Vision. He lost, was losing his vision. Maybe even an eye disease. Perhaps a speech problem. Maybe he stuttered or had some other impediment. And to support the uh, vision issue, Galatians 4.15 actually says, you would have taken out your eyes and given them to me if that were possible. And at the end of the uh, letter of Galatians, Paul actually signed it and he writes, he said, I write this in my own hand instead of dictating it to a secretary. He said, look at the huge letters, the large letters that I write with, which appears to me to um, imply vision problems. But, but there are other ways of looking at this. And he didn't describe the thorn, did he? Maybe he didn't because the Corinthians could see what it was. It may have been something visible in him. He does imply that it was given by God, but it came through Satan. That appears inconsistent somehow, doesn't it? To prevent him, the reason I say he implied it was given to him, but it came from God because it actually drove sin from his life so he would not become proud. And yet it seemed the messenger of Satan delivered it. Was Paul literally saying that God allowed Satan himself to torment him? Or was he saying that the suffering was so unpleasant that it was satanic? I mean, does that sound strange to you that Satan would torment anybody? Did he torment anyone else? Certainly tormented Job. Read chapters 1 and 2. Anybody else? Who? Who else? Some of y'all, see, some of y'all answer like this and then turn your face away. (laughs) Some of you are scared to death I'll call on you. Just wear a sign, don't call on me. But I think somebody over there said Peter. He tormented Peter. He tempted Peter to deny Christ, and he did. Remember, Jesus said, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat, and I told him he could. But I'll pray for you. That's hard to understand, isn't it? If we think God's motivation in our lives is to keep us from any pain... I don't think it is, do you? 
Is this messenger from Satan a, a reference to a demon, an actual demon who harassed Paul? Or is it to a, an evil human, one of these false teachers who caused Paul pain by manipulating these people he loved and hindered his work? One possibility is that the, the thorn was a demonic messenger sent to torment him by using these false teachers to seduce the Corinthians into rebellion. So have you figured out what it is? You want me to tell you what the answer is? I don't know. (laughs) I have my persuasion, but there's little value in you even knowing what mine is. You need to talk to God about what yours is. That's far more insightful. God's goal in sending or allowing the thorn was, was it to help Paul or hurt him? Help him, but be careful. Be careful, say it. Paul had received many wonderful revelations from God, but the thorn helped him to what? Remain humble. Does that sound like a worthwhile motivation from God? It does. But it doesn't sound very American, does it? God wanted Paul to understand whose power was at work. We can get a little confused about it, can't we? You get a good promotion, the money's rolling in, you're benefiting some way. We can sort of sometimes forget who has given us what we have, can't we? We can get a little confused about maybe uh, it's me, not God. And because Paul was so important, I'll use the word important to, to the work, God had to be sure Paul didn't wander into that conceited self-centeredness which would completely cut off his ability to serve. What do you think the worst of sins is? You think, who said that? Was that you, Roland? Why pride? It makes you God. That's well said. Many, many would say that pride is the worst of sins because it's the starting point of all other sin. Because as Roland said, it makes me God. But let me stretch that out a little bit. Pride causes you to turn away from God and turn toward self as the power as the authority over life. How many refs has started saying, well, I'm in control of my life and I'm going to do this, though it defies God's word. Paul's intense suffering kept him humble, but it also revealed his trust, reliance, dependence on God, not himself not himself, which established his credibility for all to see. Which one is more influential to us? 
Someone who seems to have everything. They've got looks, money, position, power. They've got everything. No illness, nothing's wrong, teeth all straight, hair still stuck in, (laughs) hips under control. (laughs) Or the person who obviously has physical, personal, relational issues, problems, troubles, and still walks with the Lord and serves him. Which one's more more influential? Which one do you want to be? See, are we willing, do we really want to be that? So what does your response to suffering reveal about your faith? Your response to suffering. When you suffer, where do you turn? Do you turn toward God? Or have you already turned away from Him? You know, I, I thank you for letting me mention my beautiful little grandson. And so many of you have prayed for him and our family and my daughter Evan, her husband, Andrew. Um, gosh, you've made meals for her. You've all of you have prayed, some have given money, you've loved them so well. But when you have someone in your family that you love, whether it's you or, or it's you yourself, sometimes it's almost easier if it's you, and, but it's someone you love and you can't fix. And Graham's on dialysis 10 hours a night and feeds mostly through a, a gastric tube. But, you know, we, we had to decide God didn't give what we've asked for yet, at least. So we either decide we, we go to him still for comfort and we trust him. Or we say you didn't supply what we wanted and we reject you. And we have that opportunity to decide in every area of suffering some of you are poised there right now difficult marriages rebellion with children personal illness serious illness and all of us get to decide don't we am I taking this pain to my father or am I just mad And I'm rejecting him for not doing my bidding. Our suffering reveals our spiritual condition, our maturity. But if we persevere and trust God, our faith will be strengthened to endure, but also for greater service as we've learned to to persevere. You see, suffering also, and this may be most important, draws believers to Christ. Verse 8. Verse eight. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace, what's the Greek word grace? Charis. And it can also be translated what? 
Trust, faith, grace, all from the same Greek word. Believe, all from the same Greek word. My grace is all you need. You think that's true? Summer, is God's grace enough for you always? Is that enough? We have to get there, don't we? We have to get there. My power works best when? In weakness. See, God answered, but he answered Paul differently than Paul asked. Paul sought God for some relief. He wanted it to be taken away, whether it be his eyes healed or, or these, these irritating people taken away, the demons cast away, whatever, the, whichever one the thorn was. And Paul knew God could heal. Paul had even been an instrument of healing. He had been one who cast away demons. So whatever the thorn was, he'd been actually involved in the healing that happened, in casting away the demons. And yet when Paul said, God, would you do it for me? God said, no. But I'm going to give you myself because I'm going to pour out my grace on you. And so Paul could endure. God wanted Paul to remain weak. You think that's true? So Paul would what? Rely on God. Rely on God. Now grace is, is God's, you know, we, we have a simple definition, unmerited favor. Because you know what? Grace isn't really defined clearly in the Bible. Have you noticed that? But we know it's God's power. It's, 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 it's part of his personhood that's poured out on you and enables you to suffer. Enables you to trust. Enables you to believe. Enables you to persevere. But we don't have a simple, biblical, clear definition of it, do we? We just know it's something of who he is poured out on who you are. God himself poured into you. That's what it is. Scott, you know that? You can make it. And so God's grace, his undeserved power, part of his nature that isn't natural to humans, is only supernatural from God, is poured into us And it transforms our lives. But it happens as we are in continual contact with him. How many of you are still trying to pray five minutes in the morning? That's not many. How many of you are trying five minutes in the morning? Don't give up. It needs, to, it needs to build, not recede. I've done that. As we pray five minutes, if you wake in the night and you pray, that connection with God's Spirit lets you experience 
his presence, which means his grace. You want God to work in you? You got to spend some time in front of him. You say, well, you only said five minutes. I said five minutes was a great place to start because my hope is that once you contact God, you'll lose count of how much time you've spent with him. And it'll be transformative of who you are. In my sense, and you can dispute this, this is only my sense, this church is growing more spiritual. And we can discern. You feel it, Krista? The the spirit is more discernible. It's not because Perry's preaching any better. You know what it is? It's because you're spending time with the spirit and you're bringing him in here with you. So as we know the spirit, as we join together, the spirit, our spirit bears witness with other spirit and fills this place up. So we continue. But you know, I wonder sometimes whether we give up too quickly on God's powerful grace. You know, we're Americans. We want it quick. Drive through. God, I need this. You didn't do it. I prayed twice. <laughs> well, Paul prayed three times, but and he wouldn't have quit praying, in my opinion. And God said, okay, here's what, here's what your answer is. Well, if God hasn't given you an answer, why don't you still pray? You know what? We think God's still telling us he's working. And so, you know what? We pray. How often do you think we pray? Every day, every time we awaken, every time we think of Graham, we think of prayer. Every time we go to God in prayer. Because God hasn't given us an answer. No, no. Here's, here's what I'm giving you. Uh-uh. He said, I'm working, so we're still chasing. But do we grow frustrated with God? And do we decide, I need a quicker solution. I need something more readily available to my, for my problem, to remove my pain. So I'm going to jump over here in this distraction. I'm going to go over here for this diversion. I'm going to get some counseling that I pay a lot for that surely will fix me or some super strong medication. I need something to give me a break now. And some of us stop chasing God. Stop calling on him. And we cut off the experience of grace. Not him. We cut off the experience of grace. Because we'd rather have something else. And there are lots of other distractions that are easier to lay our hands on, aren't they? I mean, think about it. How many of us go to entertainment? Uh Uh-oh, somebody did something over there. I mean, doesn't, I mean, if you just can step back, doesn't it amaze you how every stadium in the country is jam-packed with people? I don't care if it's raining, cold, hot, 60,000, 80,000, 90,000. And they've spent 100,000, a million money on top of money. And people live because they need a distraction. The problem is, if your team doesn't do so good, there goes your distraction. 
There's nothing wrong with football. I like football, all that stuff. But y'all, we don't get our sense of hope and peace from any of that stuff. We've got to go to God. We've got to go to God. Because you know what? The team's good this year. They're bad next year. You see what I'm saying? And, and I'm not down on football. I mean, I love teams. But, um, but, but, but for us, for us, we need to know how to access God. And so when we get frustrated and we go after something more superficial, something we can lay our hands on, and people do it with all kinds of things, all kinds of distractions, entertainment, sexuality, money, something that they can get to quicker, a better counselor, um, a more effective medication. And I'm decidedly not against counseling or medication. I'm completely not against those things. What I'm against is us abandoning God and looking to anything for our whole solution. But, but utilizing some other resources with God is, is great, is fine. God wanted to demonstrate his power in and through Paul's life. But to do it, Paul had to endure ongoing pain. Verse 9. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of God can work through me. And that's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses, in insults. Boy, that's a tough one, isn't it? In hardships, because we kind of think, well, I'll tolerate things, you know, that nobody's at fault, but this person mistreated me. I see it says insults here. In hardships, in persecutions, there's another intense mistreatment. In troubles that I suffer for Christ, not ones I've created myself, by the way, that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Not when I got it all under control and I can rely on myself. Self-reliance takes you from God. Weakness takes us to God. My weakness provides an opportunity for God to show his power. But are we willing to suffer so that God can show his power Power through us to others. Are we? Are y'all making up your mind or what? Are you willing to suffer so God can show his power in you and through you? Because that's where it is. That really is where it is. Are we surrendered to God's use? That's what we're talking about here. Will you embrace the trials that God sends or allows? And I don't care theologically which one you're more comfortable with. Sends or allows. Because that suffering reveals your spiritual condition. It strengthens your faith. It humbles you so that you draw closer to God in continual intimacy. And it allows you to display His grace his power in your life. 
Is anybody in here suffering today? I want to see. I want to see hands. Is anybody suffering? Will you stand and let me pray a a prayer of blessing on you? Isaiah 43, 2 says this. When you go through deep waters, and some of you are in deep waters right now, I know it. I know some of your stories. I will be with you. God's with you in the depths of that, depths of that water. When you go through rivers of difficulty, and some of you are struggling right now with difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fires of oppression, yeah, you're going to feel the flames. You will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. Because God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. As you pray this week, ask God what he wants to know, what he wants you to know about your pain. Ask him to show you what he wants you to know about what you believe about the source of your pain. Ask him. I believe he'll tell you. Father, your children are suffering in pain and only you can provide the answer. Lord, if you desire to resolve the problem, that's your choice. If you desire to heal, if you desire to reconcile situations, but Lord, I ask you that you would provide your grace, God, that each one could be strong in the middle of their weakness. God, help us not to despise our suffering. Help us not hate our weakness. Help us to be willing to surrender it to you so you can fill us with your grace and demonstrate your power to all who see. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Care volunteers will be at the front to pray with you, to anoint you with oil. Thank you for coming. Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. You can email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org, or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our connections team. You can also watch a video of this week's message, listen to worship, or search through our message archives. Visit brookwoodchurch.org slash watch or download the Brookwood Church app. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with the Sufficiency in Christ podcast series. Thanks for listening and have a great week.